Washington, D.C. It's 1904, and the train from Chicago is right on time. That tense-looking gentleman watching passengers disembark is Lyman Pierce. If he looks like a guy with a lot on his mind, it's with good reason. Pierce is an executive with the Washington branch of the YMCA. Two years earlier, he coaxed the board of directors to authorize a $350,000 fundraising drive for a new building. Pierce had gone about doing what fundraisers did in those days. He held a ball for wealthy industrialists and high society folk and gently coaxed them into making big-ticket donations. It had gone well, for a while anyway. The YMCA had raised $270,000, including a $50,000 donation from John D. Rockefeller Sr. But after two years, the campaign had stalled, and stalled badly. A passenger on that Chicago train was coming to help. He was Charles Sumner Ward of the YMCA's Chicago office, and a man whose fundraising skills had made him a legend within the organization. The two men couldn't have known that the trails they were about to blaze would be followed for generations to come. Pierce and Ward realized that the big donor approach had gone as far as it could. So they decided to try something new, a fundraising campaign aimed at a broad middle-class audience. First, they hired a publicist, a first in fundraising. Then they found donors to underwrite an advertising campaign, another first. Readers were then engaged as players in a story, a story that came complete with its own built-in tension. Will Washington, D.C.'s YMCA reach its fundraising goal? A key part of the strategy was a strict, if somewhat arbitrary, 27-day deadline. Pierce and Ward knew that a constricted timeline would create more buzz and more publicity than a longer one. The final touch was a donation clock, updating progress towards the goal. Call it the DNA ancestor of the fundraising thermometer. With the wild success of the campaign, other organizations soon adopted the techniques that Pearson Ward had created, techniques that came to be known as the YMCA School of Fundraising. This is the story of now and then, and all the disruptions in between, of the trailblazers who've taken fundraising from passing the hat to engage, share, click, give. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. So please, give the best you can. Our nation was organized to promote the general welfare. There are a lot of folks who care. By giving to help those who are less fortunate, we help ourselves. Money to fight cancer. Help for polio. Each cause worthy. We'll be stronger to make a better world. During the 1920s, American charitable donations jumped by more than 50% to $2.7 billion, partly due to the advent of national charities, organizations that had joined forces to raise funds collectively. 
They included the Child Welfare League of America, the American Federation for the Blind, and Big Brothers and Big Sisters. And it was just when these major charities felt like they had finally hit their groove that a new medium came along and disrupted everything. Radio. Radio not only impacted the way people got their news information and entertainment, it also had an effect on the way they connected to large-scale charities, thanks in no small part to a popular entertainer known to millions as Old Banjo Eyes. I had a dozen girls last summer, and each one's name was Rose. By late November 1937, Eddie Canner was a celebrated vaudeville star, singer, actor, comedian, and radio performer. Sitting in an office at Metro Golden Meyer Studios, Cantor mauled a new challenge. That fall, President Franklin Roosevelt had founded the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. Roosevelt, who had been paralyzed since 1921, enlisted Cantor to help create a national campaign. For years, Cantor had helped the president with charity work. They would do large-scale events like parades and huge charity fundraisers, most notably around President Roosevelt's birthday. Sheila Motion is the author of Acts of Conspicuous Compassion, Performance Culture and American Charity Practices. So they were these gala fundraising events, and within those events, they put on these pageants. And um, at the time, pageants were a kind of performance where they would display large thematic experiences. So the, the early pageants were about the themes of, of America. So you would have literally women dressed as like waves of grain and gold coins and silver and things like that, you know, the resources of America. It was a crazy thing to be having in relation to raising money to eradicate a, a deadly disease. Cantor, like the president, realized the success of the campaign required them to use radio. What they needed was a simple, resonant idea. It was then, according to legend, that Cantor gazed down for a few moments, then declared, We'll call it the March of Dimes, a play on the March of Time newsreels popular in those days. The March of Dimes, they really knew how to use radio to disseminate their message. So every January, to coincide with Roosevelt's birthday, they would do the dime drives. So that would be a week-long event throughout the country. So they were doing radio spots leading up to the campaign and throughout the week. The March of Dimes was the first big national charity to mobilize the stars of film and radio. They would enlist radio celebrities at the time to basically record solicitations, you know, to get involved in the dime drive, that kind of thing. So they added that celebrity element, which plays a greater role as the 20th and 21st centuries have progressed. I think there is a spot in your heart and a dime in your pocket for these children for the march of times that keeps their hope alive. From Jack Benny and Clark Gable to Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley to more recently, Jennifer Lopez, Reese Witherspoon, and Jessica Alba, the March of Dimes grew and thrived in part through the power of celebrity endorsements. It was this really 
really interesting combination between entertainment, but then that charity aspect. And then also, because the president was sort of the figurehead of this, you had that kind of patriotic sentiment that was woven through. And that's, you know, that's kind of a strange thing for us to think about now where we have, you know, separation between our, our charity drives typically and our government. By the 1950s, television was displacing radio as the it medium, and a new fundraising vehicle was born, the Telethon, live broadcasts urging the audience to donate by telephone. Soon, armies of entertainers were recruited for local telethons for any number of causes. Among them were the Bell Sisters, a teenage singing duo from Seal Beach, California. As one of the Bell sisters, Cynthia Bell, recalls, the atmosphere backstage was often less than organized. You were out on your own. When you got to a telethon, you had not a clue how well or how unwell it was going to be run. Uh, Everything was a volunteer. Everything was a person who had wandered in and said, yeah, I'd be glad to. Not necessarily had they ever put on a telethon, not necessarily had they ever met any musicians, not necessarily did they know what they were supposed to do because nobody knew what they were going to do. It was the first time maybe that the Salvation Army had ever put one on. So (laughs) it it was a zoo. That's the best way I can explain it. A decade later, on a Labor Day weekend in the mid-1960s, a national charity took a considerable gamble. Buoyed by the success of smaller television events, the Muscular Dystrophy Association of America launched its first live national fundraising telethon. The host was its national chairman, Jerry Lewis, long since having parted ways with Dean Martin. The annual event became a Labor Day fixture, in large part because of the edgy unpredictability of its host such as the time in 1976 when the host decided to shake down his studio audience. Sheila Motion. There's a portion later into the night where he actually kind of stalks the audience and exhorts the studio audience to give him money, like right out of their pockets. And um, it's kind of a weird moment because what happens is that he... You know, he's sort of dancing around and he's listening to the music and then he, he sort of rants. He sort of uh, gets, uh, works himself up into a rant. And uh, he's, you know, he starts to look at the camera and starts to say, you know, you know, we've had a lot of fun here tonight, but, you know, I don't see those tallies going up. I don't see the totals going up. And he's, he's almost angry. And he's sort of inciting the viewer at home to, you know, get up. He doesn't say ass, but he's saying, you know, get off your... But and you know, call in a donation and everything. And then he asks one of the stagehands to give him a, a bucket. There's a red bucket that's nearby. And he's like, I should have thought of this hours ago. And, and so he starts to take the bucket and he starts to go into the audience. But he goes into the audience and he's and he's saying, you know, you know, get out your money. I want to see it. He goes, put it in there, stick it in there. It's really vulgar when you watch it. And it, it's quite unnerving. Cynthia Bell performed at several of these telethons and had a front-row view to all the strange energy an unpredictable star like Jerry Lewis 
was capable of creating. It was a big thing for him to do this year after year and try and bring in as much money as he could. And he was on stage for maybe 36 hours. He was dead sometimes. He was exhausted. He, he wasn't afraid to pick up a child or shake its hand or pat him on the head or hold them. And he, in some cases, take them out of the arms of the parents or take them out of a wheelchair. You might see the pain on the child's face when he's being lifted up, or you might see uh, some kind of reaction being taken from a parent. These, this is not an easy thing to do, and to be doing it for 36 hours or longer, you know, you get kind of on the rummy side. In 1984, a new kind of fundraising messenger emerged. When Boomtown Rats lead singer Bob Geldof saw reports of famine in Ethiopia, he got an idea. He called his friend, Midge Yor, and the two quickly wrote a song to promote famine relief. Then they worked the phones. On November 25th, an A-list of British music stars gathered in London's Sarm Studios to record the single, Do They Know It's Christmas, under the collective name Band-Aid. The single was released just three days later, climbed to the top of the charts, and stayed there. Soon, an all-star concert was arranged for Wembley Stadium and dubbed Live Aid. Sheila Motion. I think what was unique uh, about Live Aid was the the real entertainment aspect of it. Um, that that was really the crux of it. Um, they were not interested in opening offices to get resources. There was no other. There were no other arms of this. It was purely um, we're gonna we released a single and then now we're gonna do this massive. Um, multi-coordinated concert events. And that really drove everything. Celebrity-driven fundraising wasn't new, but the concentrated star power and multi-platform rollout of Band-Aid, combined with America's We Are the World and Live Aid concerts, was unprecedented. But Band-Aid and Live Aid weren't without their critics. It's an approach that seems to kind of be very uh, disrespectful to the dignity of poor people. William Easterly is a professor of economics at New York University and author of the book, The Tyranny of Experts. It's a classic example of what has become very widely known in development as poverty porn or disaster porn, in which exaggerated negative images are used to kind of raise money for, for fighting poverty. And that's, that's become a very widespread practice with NGOs around the world. With the rise of television, the use of visuals in fundraising led to a controversial technique, still widely used. Viewers are shown images of devastation and hardship, often featuring children, evoking a sense of pity. Viewers are then offered a chance to ease their discomfort by making a donation and becoming part of the solution. Sheila Motion. It's not so much a misrepresentation as it's, um, it amplifies a sort of sentimental, a set of sentimental cues or a set of emotional cues that then are supposed to kind of trigger something in uh, the viewer or whoever is witnessing the, the image um, to say, 
I, that makes me feel terrible. I can donate and help stop that. With the advent of each disruptive new media channel, from letters to advertising to phones, radio, and television, the fundraising world adapts, going always where the crowd is. And today, that crowd is online. And that has inspired a whole new breed of fundraiser. In the fall of 2003, three Australian men sat in a pub talking about fashions and trends. A few beers later, they made a pact to grow mustaches throughout the month of November with prizes for the best and worst awarded at a month-end party. To name this contest, they playfully conflated mustache in November into Movember. The first Movember was a hit, at least for the small group involved. One of these original three was Adam Garoni. He was inspired by campaigns to fight breast cancer and wondered if there wasn't a way to use Movember to, as his slogan would read, change the face of men's health. Garoni cold-called the CEO of Australia's Prostate Cancer Foundation, met him for coffee, and pitched him on the Movember idea. The CEO laughed, thanked him, and declined the offer, adding, If you happen to make any money out of this, we'll gladly take it. That year, 450 men raised $54,000 and donated all of it to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the largest single donation the organization had received. In the years that followed, with the rise of social media, Movember spread virally. In 2011, the campaign raised $120 million. Building on fundraising basics going back a century, Movember is a distinct proprietary idea working within a time limit, and it's a perfect fit for social media. As Ryan Scott wrote in Forbes, Movember earned viral appeal because it's a hip, hilarious, visible challenge appealing to people's sense of humor, gamesmanship, and social instincts. Call it Fundraising 2.0, and a sign that charitable giving had moved online. Today, charities are now seeing double-digit growth in online giving. And for many of them, data helps drive their success. Data shows that a direct mail appeal using an oversized envelope draws 2% better response than those in a letter-sized envelope. What big data can't help with is conceiving a resonant idea to attach to a cause especially one that can spread irresistibly on social media. Some big ideas take years to perfect. Others come suddenly, like a bucket of icy water. Andrew Frades is the brother of Peter Frades, who championed the Ice Bucket Challenge in 2014 to fight ALS. So Peter Frades is the all-American boy that you see in every movie, every TV show, um, every book you read. He is uh, an uh, amazing athlete, an amazing leader. He is uh, my hero, my inspiration. When 
My brother found out that something was wrong was actually when he was playing baseball, which is very ironic because Pete was a Boston College baseball player prior to his professional life of being an insurance salesman uh, in Boston. So when he was hit by a pitch on the wrist in August of 2011, he was noticing symptoms that he really wasn't bouncing back and he thought it might have been a pinched nerve. However, in March of 2012, he got the devastating diagnosis of ALS. It wasn't long before Peter Frades determined to blaze a trail of his own. So the story of the Ice Bucket Challenge actually starts basically at that night at the dinner table when my brother said, we're going to get this in front of philanthropists like Bill Gates. He set the vision and we got to work right away. We were trying anything and everything to move the needle on this on this disease. Peter Freides knew that for years, the idea of an ice bucket challenge had kicked around the internet, attached to various causes. But it had never found serious traction. Freides understood that with the right approach, its viral potential was enormous. His first step was to recruit friends in high places. Andrew Freides. And once we started doing it around the house, we got it into the Boston influencers like the Julian Edelmans and the Boston Bruins players and the David Ortiz's of the world. We got it in those hands, and that's really when it took off. With Boston sports royalty on board, Peter Freides looked to Seattle for help. I, I would be lying if I ever thought that uh, Bill Gates would actually be doing the Ice Bucket Challenge. However, he is our favorite Ice Bucket Challenge video because of the vision my brother set. And his was pretty damn good, too. It was very well produced. He had, uh, I don't know, different camera angles and, and everything. And he had this big contraption, and it was really, really cool. With that, a steady splash of international A-list celebrities answered the challenge. Oprah Winfrey, Carrie Underwood, Will Smith, Ethel Kennedy, LeBron James, Drake, Citizen Donald Trump, and President George W. Bush all took the challenge. It was personal. It was easy. And like Movember, it was scalable. Anyone could do it. It made full use of social networks. There was one last key ingredient that helped the Ice Bucket Challenge go viral. The unexpected power of online video. By 2014, video had gotten easier to create, edit, and upload. It became the great equalizer, enabling anyone to post their video alongside those of Taylor Swift and Tom Cruise. Not only did millions of Ice Bucket Challenge videos change online fundraising, they changed Facebook. Andrew Freides. There were 17 million videos uploaded to Facebook viewed more than a hundred million times. So we heard those stats directly from Facebook and they invested back into their platform in into video and into these donate to causes because of the Ice Bucket Challenge. The fundraising world took notice. By 2016, videos from nonprofit groups were drawing six billion views. Figures show that crowdfunding campaigns that included personal videos 
raise 150% more money than those without video. And 57% of those who watch a nonprofit video go on to make a donation. Soon the rise of online video was followed by the rise of online live streaming. And that would inspire a powerful new twist on an old idea. Michael Wasserman is CEO and co-founder of Tiltify, a new kind of online fundraising platform. So back in the day when you used to watch, let's say, the Jerry Lewis telethon, you know, I'd always ask my mom if I could pick up the phone and donate. So you'd call up, you'd donate your $10, but ultimately nothing would happen. There was no engagement. Uh, It was just like watching a TV show and you could donate. As an experienced fundraiser, Michael Wasserman was fascinated by the charitable potential of online live streaming. Each year, more than 100 million broadcasters and viewers interact live on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, and Twitter. So, he wondered, what if charities could be part of that? Imagine streaming with your favorite band and being able to choose the next song they play by donating to one of our donation polls or having them your name pop up on the screen thanking you uh, every time you did a donation within 10 seconds. Um, so it's really interacting with them and giving that instant gratification right away that really fits with the way that the new generation is both donating and fundraising. As Wasserman explains, Tiltify uses online live streaming to make the donor an active part of the content. It is 100% more about being part of the spectacle than watching the spectacle. Um, the huge difference between what we do on Tiltify and this type of fundraising and really everything else, even telethons that still exist, is it's still like watching a show. For example, it's the difference between, let's say, uh, Chance the Rapper wants to raise money. It's the difference between him doing a concert And that concert just being streamed out or put on TV and people watching it and they can donate. The difference between that and saying he's actually going to address the people watching and give them specific interactions like choosing songs, responding to maybe large donations. Maybe if you donate a certain amount of money, he throws your name into a song, whatever the fun ideas are across everything, that's the huge difference. Now, when you can interact, we see an average of a 250% increase in fundraising when you can interact. Marshall McLuhan once noted that when something is current, it creates currency. So how does a 21st century charity focus a scattered online community on a single huge goal, such as ending extreme poverty by 2030? Simon Moss is co-founder of Global Citizen, which some have described as the buzzfeed of social activism. So Global Citizen is all about combining the power of pop and policy. We recognize that if you want to reach a really large audience and have influence, we've got to use the tools of, of pop culture. The Global Citizen formula relies on a combination of content, storytelling, social media, and pop culture. So the way 
our global citizens can make an impact and a difference in the world is maybe they're on their Facebook feed one day and, and they see an interesting story that a friend had, had read or shared. And it might say something like, um, Rihanna says to Justin Trudeau, hey, are you going to help get girls in school? And they click on it because they think Justin Trudeau's cute or they like Rihanna's music. And they led to a story on Global Citizen. Through that, they'll learn about the issues and the fact that there are millions and millions of girls who are out of school. There are 263 million children in total out of school. And, and that Rihanna is a partner of ours at Global Citizen and is working with a group called the Global Partnership for Education to help raise $3 billion to get an extra 80 million children in school in the next three years. Another key to Mars's strategy is immediacy. And on Global Citizen, we give that person a chance to take action right there, right now. And they can sign a petition or tweet Justin Trudeau to say, hey, I saw what Rihanna said. What are you doing? And when we snowball that, when we have tens of thousands of people reading, taking action, we can put a huge amount of pressure on, on world leaders. Global Citizen adapts the spirit of Live Aid to the online sensibility of today's millennials. The world has moved on a long way since then. And in fact, we're now in a world, thanks to social media, thanks to the different technologies we've gotten, thanks to the work that generations of campaigners and advocates and grassroots workers have done, that means that it's not about me talking for citizens in Africa. They can speak for themselves. It's not about me saying, my government's got to go in and fix your country because it's a basket case. Because actually, there are citizens who are working their guts out every day to improve their countries everywhere around the world. The story of modern fundraising is a story of disruption, from the rise of big national campaigns to the YMCA techniques introduced by Ward and Pierce to wrapping a campaign in a big resonant idea to embracing ever-changing media. And along the century-old road from passing the hat to viral videos, cyber activism, and online crowdsourcing, the trailblazers of fundraising have transformed donors themselves, from benefactors to stakeholders, from patrons to participants. I'm Walter Isaacson, and this is Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. If you want to hear more about anything we've talked about on the show, you can visit our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Again, that's delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>